this afternoon and turn to number number nine. I think we need to go home. Take a nap. John chapter nine. And we'll begin where we left off this morning in verse 13. And a little bit more about uh, the one who was healed of his blindness. Let me start out by saying that every college philosophy major has to take epistemology. Did you take that in class? No, you didn't know how, you don't, <laughs> barely knew how to pronounce it. Anyway, this is a study which deals with the questions, how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? How can you be sure what about what we think we know? See, this is deep stuff, isn't it? Probably too deep for Sunday afternoon, right? But one day, one philosophy professor said, We all know, of course, that Jesus never claimed to be God. So you can tell what kind of a school this was. Hopefully not a Bible college. And by adding that little phrase, of course, he was insinuating anyone with a half a brain would know that I'm, what I'm saying is true. Or perhaps you've heard the professor state, we know, of course, that evolution is a fact. Okay, you got some problems there, right? You know, when anyone authoritatively states, we know, the obvious question is, how do you know? How do you know what you know? Often when we examine the evidence you discover that there are some knowledgeable people on both sides of the issue. So the obvious question remains, how do you know what you think you know? But when it comes to spiritual truth, the common view today is that there is no such thing as absolute truth in the spiritual realm. So any spiritual view that you hold or is just a matter of your subjective opinion or your personal experience. But there isn't universal, absolute, spiritual truth. If you claim you know the truth and that all other views are wrong, well, then you're a narrow-minded bigot. Tolerance and open-mindedness, especially in spiritual matters, are the prevailing values of the day. How can you say, I know something from the Bible? See, that's very narrow-minded, according to many people today. But in the story of Jesus healing the man born blind, there are a number of comments about the various characters claiming to know or not to know. And when the Pharisees called in a man's parents to try to discredit the account of his healing, they answer in verse 20 and 21, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. I don't know if you ever noticed that, 
how many times this idea of knowing something comes up in this chapter. John explains in verse 22 that their evasive answer stemmed from their fear of the Jewish leaders who had threatened to excommunicate anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And then in verse 24, the Jewish leaders state, We know that this man is a sinner. The healed blind man, he dodges the issue for a moment, replies, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. In verse 29, the leaders come back with, We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And the former blind man comes back with, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. And then he concludes, If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. So at this point, these leaders are exasperated, and they've heard enough, and they want to throw the man out of the temple. But you know what? The dialogue raises this question. How do you know what you know, especially in the spiritual realm? And so we're going to see here that true spiritual knowledge is founded on Jesus Christ, opening our eyes, but sin hinders us from the true spiritual knowledge. And when it comes to knowing God, there's only one sure basis, namely his choosing to reveal himself to us. Anything else is going to be just speculation. For example, we could sit around and speculate on whether men from Mars have blue eyes. We could sit around and talk about that this afternoon, right? You'd say, I'd rather not. But we wouldn't have any basis for knowing it. Anybody been to Mars lately? Don't raise your hand. We just stated our subjective opinions. But if a man from Mars did come to earth and reveal himself to us, then we could say, with some certainty, I met a man from Mars and he had blue eyes. Well, Jesus claimed over in Luke 10, 22, all things are delivered to me of my father and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he whom the Son will reveal him. And here in John's Gospel, Jesus repeatedly claims to have been sent by God the Father to reveal the Father to us. In first John or in John 1 18, John stated, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is of the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In chapter 14, he'll later tell Philip, Have I been so long time with you, yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? So God's revelation of himself to us centers in the person of Jesus Christ, which we have in the written eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And so true spiritual knowledge of God is founded on knowing Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent to reveal himself to us. And so we find, though, that sin hinders this true spiritual knowledge, and this is illustrated in this story both by the former blind man's parents and by the Pharisees. Notice, first of all, sin blinds to spiritual truth. Those in spiritual darkness think they know spiritual truth. 
but sin blinds them to the fact they don't really know God at all. You know, sometimes someone might say something like this. Well, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe in Jesus. Well, these Pharisees had seen all kinds of miracles. And yet their hearts were hardened against Jesus. The blind man's parents had even seen their prayers answered in that their blind son had been miraculously healed, and yet they were afraid to openly confess Jesus as Lord. The Pharisees and the blind man's parents reveal four factors which are either sinful in themselves or they stem from sin that keep unbelievers from true spiritual knowledge. And these factors can hinder growing in spiritual knowledge among us who do believe in Jesus. The first one is the fear of men hinders True spiritual knowledge. Now in verse 13, we have the word, or the uh, first word there is they. They seems to refer to the man's neighbors. We're not told why they brought him to the Pharisees, but here's my guess. In that culture, the religious leaders exercised control over the people through intimidation. In verse 22, it says, These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. And so here in a culture of fear, people keep their distance from anything that would get them into trouble with the authorities. And that's how the communist regimes would operate. If you know that your neighbor is criticizing the government and you don't report him, the authorities are going to come after you. If you do report him, maybe you'll get some extra credit for supporting the state. So the neighbors hear that Jesus, uh, whom the religious leaders are trying to get rid of, has healed the beggar, and they think, we need to take him to the Pharisees so we don't get into trouble. And the Pharisees ask him how he received his sight. And he tells him how Jesus applied clay to his eyes. He washed and he now sees there in verse 15. And this sparks a debate among the Pharisees. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But in frustration, they turn again to the blind man and they ask him his opinion about his this Sabbath breaker, Jesus, hoping that he may have changed his mind or his story. But he ups the ante by replying, he is a prophet. Now at this moment, they wonder if this is a hoax. So they call the man's parents and they ask, Is this your son, verse 19, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Their reply comes in verse 20 and 21. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth we know not, and who hath opened his eyes we know not. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. And the answer was not truthful. It's inconceivable that their son had not told them what he had told the neighbors, namely that Jesus had healed him and how he had healed them. But John explains in verse 22 that they replied as they did because they feared the Jews who had threatened to put them out of the synagogue if they confessed Jesus Christ, Jesus as Christ. Now, There are different levels of excommunication, and we can't be sure which level is indicated here, but being excommunicated uh, at any level is a serious penalty in that tight-knit religious community. 
And eventually they would have, it would have meant cut off socially from your neighbors who would also be kicked out of the synagogue if they associated with you or helped you in any way. You couldn't buy or sell because your neighbors engaged in business with you. Uh, they would get into trouble. You couldn't escape by moving to the next town because the rabbis uh, would enforce the Sanhedrin's ban there. And for a poor family, being excommunicated would result in social and financial devastation. So while we can understand the pressure, the intense pressure on the man's parents, it's just too bad that they feared these spiritual bullies more than they feared God. They could have let the facts speak for themselves, saying, you know, Jesus opened the eyes of our son. He's been blind from birth. But instead, they dodged the issue. I think it's a problem that's plagued many in our day today. People fear what others will think. They think they're more fearful about what others around them will think than what God thinks. Maybe uh, it happens in your family, your extended family. Maybe it happened to you. Maybe as a member of your family, you met Jesus and you changed. And uh, it kind of embarrasses or threatens the other members of your family. And they'd really not rather talk about it. Uh, Or if it comes up, Jesus is named as the cause of the loved one's change. They downplay it by saying, oh, yes, now that seems to work for him. And then they change the subject. They've received a powerful testimony of the power of of God, but as long as they fear what someone else is going to think, they're not going to experience Christ's power in their own lives. The fear of men hinders true spiritual knowledge. Secondly, wrong assumptions hinder true spiritual knowledge. Here we move from the parents to the religious leaders, whom John calls the Jews. John almost offhandedly mentions the crux of the problem in verse 14, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now, we've already mentioned that uh, that violates Sabbath regulations. You could not knead the dough on Sabbath or the clay. But Jesus kneaded the saliva and the dirt And then there were rules against anointing. We mentioned that. And you could not heal on the Sabbath unless it was to save a life. So these rules really are not in the law of Moses. They were just added. And their wrong assumption was, our rules equal God's rules. Oh, there's some religions that like to say that today, aren't there? Our rules, or the... The rules of our leader are the same as God's rules. And they'll say something like, Jesus violated our rules. And thus, Jesus violated God's law, and he's a sinner. Our rules equal God's law. Jesus violated our rules, so Jesus violated God's law. That's bad thinking. Their assumption was faulty. Some of the Pharisees disagreed with this reasoning, and so they debated among themselves, verse 16, and that may have been someone like Nicodemus, 
or Joseph of Arimathea, both of whom were on the council. They later took some bold action uh, to provide for Jesus' burial, remember? Earlier in chapter 3, Nicodemus had admitted to Jesus, For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. So here they register some disagreement. They ask, How can a man who is a sinner perform such things? But their view did not prevail. There's a third aspect here. Discrediting evidence hinders true spiritual knowledge. You know, the Pharisees had the evidence of the neighbors and the parents and the man himself. He had been born blind and Jesus had healed him. But they wanted more evidence. And more truthfully, they wanted evidence that would refute the evidence they already had. Because they didn't like the evidence they had. So they called a man a second time and they said in verse 24, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. What they're saying is, come on, your story must be wrong. Tell the truth. We know for a fact this man is a sinner. That phrase there, give glory to God or give God the praise. You go back clear to Joshua chapter 7 verse 19. It's an expression there that what Joshua said to Achan. You remember Achan, don't you? And Joshua told him, tell the truth. That's what this phrase means. Give God glory or give glory to God. Tell the truth. But John wants us to see that man is really glorifying God by testifying to the truth about Jesus. He won't change his story. And so they ask him again in verse 26. What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? They're not looking for more evidence so they can believe. Rather, they're trying to find something they can use to discredit what they already have. Now the man reveals both his sense of humor and his fortitude to stand up for those against those who were religious leaders, those that uh, were feared. He says in verse 27, notice it there, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear again? Uh, will ye also be his disciples? And so they revile him and they take their stand as disciples of Moses. They state what they know. We say in verse 29, We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And back in chapter 7, uh, they had written off Jesus by claiming that they didn't uh, know where he was from, namely from Nazareth. But here they're discrediting Jesus as a religious upstart from who knows where. Look at verse 31 through verse 33. This is a great uh, reply from the former blind man. He says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, and if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Wow. At this point, the Pharisees are so beside themselves, they put the man down and they put him out. Verse 34. They weren't genuinely seeking evidence to clear up their doubts. Rather, looking ways to discredit the evidence that they already had been given, and they would not come to know the truth. See, always seeking more evidence while discrediting the evidence you have hinders true spiritual knowledge. 
And then, of course, pride hinders true spiritual knowledge. Pharisees put this man's down this man's testimony in verse 34. Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. They held to the view that the disciples reflected in chapter uh, verse 2 that either the man or his parents must have sinned for him to be born blind. But they prided himself on their spiritual knowledge because they thought they knew the scriptures. So how could this former blind beggar, probably illiterate, how could he teach them anything? John is, again, using some irony here. He couldn't teach them anything, and neither could Jesus because of their spiritual pride, their spiritual blindness. In verse 40, these Pharisees challenge Jesus by asking, Are we blind also? Jesus replies in verse 41, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see... Therefore, your sin remaineth. And he's meaning here that if you would admit your spiritual blindness, I would forgive you and I would heal you. But because you're so arrogant and you insist that you can see, you remain in your sins. You see, spiritual pride is one of the main reasons people do not come to Jesus Christ today. Pride. If I, have to, if I come to Jesus, I'm going to have to admit that I'm a sinner, that I'm wrong, that I've done wrong. And people don't like to do that. Can you relate to that? We don't like to admit it when we're wrong, do we? And many people think their good works will commend them to God. Hey, I'm not a bad guy. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, never killed anybody, never robbed any banks, never, you know, not done anything really bad. So people don't see their need for a Savior. And the starting point for true spiritual knowledge is to admit that you're a sinner. You need Jesus to save you. So the fear of men, wrong assumptions based on religious tradition, always seeking more evidence while discrediting the evidence you already have, and spiritual pride will hinder true spiritual knowledge. Now, secondly, we notice here Christ opens eyes to spiritual truth. The foundation for spiritual knowledge, true spiritual knowledge, is for Christ to open your eyes. And unlike the parents and the Pharisees who had both began by claiming certain knowledge, the man begins by admitting that there's much that he doesn't know. You know, the parents said, we know. The Pharisees, we know. And this blind beggar says, I don't know. He didn't know where Jesus was when they asked him. He didn't know much about Jesus at the point of his healing, although he did soon surmise that he was a prophet. He didn't know enough to comment on the theological debate about whether Jesus was a sinner or not because he had broken the Sabbath. But there was one thing he did know for certain. And it was a glorious fact in verse 25. One thing I know that where I was blind, now I see. I don't know much, but I know this. In this, the man is a type of everyone who truly knows Jesus. A new believer doesn't know much, do they? When you got saved, you didn't know much. 
You didn't know the epistles from the apostles. You thought the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I mean, we just don't know much when we get first get saved, do we? But one thing we do know, I was lost and now I'm saved. You know, maybe the Bible was confusing before you got saved. Maybe it was boring before you got saved. But now it's food for your soul. And you long for it like a newborn baby longs for mother's milk. Before you shrugged off sin. Hey, that's no big deal. But after you got saved, even the little things began to bother you. And because you recognized that you were a sinner. Before you said, oh, everybody does that. Everybody loses their temper. Everybody uses swear words. Everybody cheats on their taxes. But after you got saved, it's a whole different outlook, isn't it? After God opened your eyes, you begin to feed on the Word, and the Holy Spirit begins, who indwells you now, He begins to convict you of things that you formerly did, and you, ooh, that's the way you spoke to, to your wife before? That wasn't very loving. The way you looked at a woman was lustful. The way you covered your tracks, that was not truthful. And so you begin to call sin for what it is, and you begin to walk daily in repentance. You begin to know, want to know Christ more deeply. The foundation of this new desire for spiritual knowledge is that Christ opened your eyes. You see yourself as a sinner. You see God as absolutely holy. You see the provision that Christ has made for you on the cross. What a wonderful thing. To have your eyes open spiritually. And then growing in spiritual truth. From the foundation of Christ opening your eyes, you begin to grow in spiritual knowledge. The man begins by knowing Jesus as the man called Jesus. Verse 11. He progresses to calling him a prophet in verse 17. Later he acknowledges as one uh, worthy of being followed. That's uh, disciples. That's the word disciples in verses 27 and 28. And he moves on to argue that Jesus had come from God in verse 33. And finally, when he sees Jesus for the first time, he believes in him and he worships him in verse 38. And he says here, verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You see, the Bible pictures the Christian life as a growth process from birth to infancy, to childhood, to young adulthood, to spiritual fatherhood. And time alone does not ensure spiritual growth. We have been actively engaged in the process daily. We need healthy diet of spiritual food from the Word. We need to talk with our Heavenly Father and take all of our cares and our burdens to Him in prayer. And we need to spend time with our brothers and sisters in the family of God, helping each other to grow. And we need to be judging and turning from the sins that hinder spiritual growth. When it comes to true spiritual knowledge, we still need to be careful. Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Or as he said in 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. 
story is told of an English actor who was honored with a banquet. In the course of the evening, he was asked to give a reading, and so he chose Psalm 23. He read it in a moving way that brought out the beauty of the psalm, and his friends applauded. Later in the evening, an aged pastor was asked to speak, and he too quoted Psalm 23. His voice rang with assurance and was vibrant with love, and when he concluded, there was no applause, but there was not a dry eye in the room. The actor stepped over to the pastor and he grasped his hand. He said, Sir, I know the psalm, but you know the shepherd. What is it you know tonight, this afternoon? I hope you know the shepherd. And I, know that, I hope you know that he has opened your eyes to the truth of who he is. And I hope you want to know him even more. We need to press on to know our risen Savior. Paul said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which were behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What do you know this afternoon? And how do you know you know? I don't want to get real philosophical here, but I think these are important things to talk about. They were important for John to talk about here and the blind man, the formerly blind man. It says, one thing I do know, once I was blind, now I can see. Father in heaven, 